Well, once again, I want to say to all of you um, what I just said and what I tried to express in a letter that Ethan read to you last week, that I thank you for the encouragement that you have given me and my family. I have great respect for all of you who have uh, gone through the care of a loved one. And I've seen God in this, and I want you to see God in all of this as well, in whatever it is that you're going through or sharing with others. And I want to share with you a scripture that I would read late at night with mom in the hospital, and it may sound a bit familiar. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. It's the 23rd Psalm. And it has that phrase, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And as we're living in a world of conflict right now, it might be the sort of thing that we say, you know, the table's fine, but do you think maybe you could uh, load a rifle or maybe, um, you know, fire up some missiles for me in the presence of my enemies? What's with this table business? The table business is that God is saying, I am going to turn turmoil, conflict, and suffering into a gathering. I'm going to transform the harsh realities of this world into a communion and a celebration because it's always been God's intent to gather us together around His table. Usually I begin with a uh, scripture, but I want to start with a statement this morning. It's a word about suffering. And whether you have or are experiencing suffering on a very personal level, we need to say a word about that. And, and even as the world goes through yet more suffering, we've done this before, we will do it again until Christ returns, we need to have a word about it because there are so many different ways that we as humans try to explain struggling or suffering with our technology with our wisdom with our ability to uh, make things create things and do things we try to eliminate all suffering and in my life I have heard promises that technology will ultimately eliminate all suffering and I will tell you technology has done a lot to eliminate certain types of suffering I'm thankful for medicines and treatments, things that alleviate the suffering that ages past had to deal with. 
But make no mistake, technology can also cause suffering like we've never seen before. Wealth seeks to escape suffering. Maybe we need to get away. Maybe we need to go on a vacation. Maybe we just need to save everything up. If we have more money, it will eliminate all suffering. We'll never have any wants ever again. Sometimes there's not enough wealth to buy our way out of suffering. Power pushes it off on others. They can suffer, but we won't. We will use our power to push our suffering off on them. And we hide behind the, the idol of strength, thinking that that's how we avoid. If I'm strong enough, I'll never have to suffer, we say to ourselves. And even in religions, you have attempts over the ages to somehow deny suffering. That the reason why we suffer is because we have desires. And if we could just give up all desires, then we would no longer suffering. That's been around through, for ages. It even shows up in movies. That's what Yoda tells Darth Vader before he's Darth Vader. You've got to get rid of all your desires and wants or you'll suffer. In his little Yoda voice. We reject suffering. We say that the divine doesn't suffer. God doesn't suffer, so we shouldn't suffer. So if we're enlightened and more like God, then we will overcome suffering. Suffering is just an illusion. We deny it. Or we despise it. And typically, we even see this in our churches. Maybe if you're suffering, you need to ask yourself, what is God trying to teach you? How are you being punished and judged? Sometimes suffering is by our own doing, but sometimes it just happens. God's not always showing His disfavor in suffering. I I, want to say to you, I want to submit to you that the way of Christ has a unique approach to suffering that I have not seen in any other philosophy or religion to the degree that you see it in the way of Christ. And that is that Christ enters into our suffering. He shares in it with us and transforms it. And there's so many different biblical passages we could look at, but there's one in particular I want us to notice this morning, and that's Revelation chapter 5. And I want to read this to you uh, as an annotated reading, which is a fancy way of saying I'm going to interrupt every once in a while and make a comment on it, because it's Revelation. Okay, So let's, let's follow me as, as we go through this word together. Revelation 5, John has a vision, and he says, I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Now he's seen this glorious vision of God seated on the throne in heaven and he's holding a decree. He's holding a scroll in his hand. It's written on both sides. In other words, there's a lot of good stuff on it. And it's fastened with seven seals. Which means this is of highest authority. Completely sealed. You've got to have all the authority to break open that seal. To get through the code, or you can't get it. I also saw a powerful angel calling out in a voice like thunder. Is there anyone who can open the scroll? Who can break its seals? 
In other words, who's authorized to carry out the will of the one on the throne? Because if, he, if they can, if we can find an agent who can carry this out, a knight who will go on this quest for the king, then good things are going to happen. Because we know what the Holy One on the throne has in mind is good for all of us. Unfortunately, there was no one. No one in heaven. No one on earth. No one from the underworld who was able to break open the scroll and read it. And that's a tragedy. And John says, I wept and wept and wept because no one was found able to open the scroll, able to read it. But just then, one of the elders said, don't weep. Look, the lion from tribe Judah, the root of David's tree, has conquered. He can open the scroll. He can rip through the seven seals. So I looked, and there, surrounded by the throne, by the creatures, by the elders, was a lamb, slaughtered but standing tall. Seven horns he had and seven eyes, the seven spirits of God, sent into all the earth. And he came to the one seated on the throne and took the scroll from his right hand. The moment he took the scroll, the four creatures and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. Each had a harp. Each had a bowl and a, a gold bowl filled with incense. These are the prayers of God's holy people. And they sang a new song. Worthy, take the scroll, open its seals. Slain, pain and blood, you bought men and women. Bought them back from all over the earth. Bought them back for God. Then you made them a kingdom, priests for our God, priest kings to rule over the earth. I looked again and I heard a company of angels around the throne, the creatures and the elders. Ten thousand times ten thousand their number, thousand after thousand after thousand in full song singing, the slain lamb is worthy, take the power, the wealth, the wisdom, the strength, take the honor, the glory, the blessing. And then I heard every being in heaven and earth, in underworld and sea, join in all places, all places singing. To the one on the throne, to the Lamb, the blessing, the honor, the glory, the strength, from age after age after age. So is it a lion or a lamb? That's the key here. You know, again... The dangers of uh, reading Revelation without some s sense of poetry and drama. You're going to say, wait, no one in heaven, earth, or in the, under, in the underworld, then where does the lamb come from? You're getting too literal, all right? That's a point of drama that it seems like no one's worthy, but there's one who is worthy. And when he arrives, it causes the hosts of heaven to break out in song, new song. They have to write New songs for this. What's so exceptional, though, is that this lion of the tribe of Judah is a lamb, and that's what we need to pay attention to. He turns and looks, and instead of seeing a mighty lion, he sees a lamb, a lamb that is slain but standing upright. The lion is a lamb. The lamb is a sacrifice. Not the... Mighty, 
fierce lion that we would expect to see, but the gentle lamb, the the helpless lamb that is slain as a sacrifice in our place. And the fact that the lamb is slain tells you that the lamb didn't do very well, you know? The, the, the hardest part about a living sacrifice is that they tend to want to get away from the altar. But this lamb has already been slain. He did not resist. He did not put up a fight. But he remained obedient. Obedient to death. As Paul says in Philippians, obedient even to death, the kind of shameful death you see on a cross. But here's this lamb, slain yet living, a sacrifice and yet a lion. And this lion lamb then carries out the will of God on the scroll. Why is he worthy? Because he was slain. Because he was the one that followed the will of God. He can enact the will of God. We have an indication here, like you'll see nowhere else, that our Savior, our Rescuer, our Hero, and understand, the Lion of tribe Judah, the Root of David, that's, those are signal words for this is our Hero, this is our Champion, this is our Conquering Warrior, and instead we get a slain Lamb. But that slain Lamb is actually the Savior, not the mighty Hero that we expect. That the heroism of God is to sacrifice Himself to enter into our suffering and in the belly of the beast transform it into hope. Which is historically exactly what Jesus does. We talk about the cross. And often when we come to the Lord's Supper table, we think on the cross. Now I'm going to tell you, the table is not the cross. They are two different things. No more so than baptism is the Lord's Supper table. But baptism and the Lord's Supper table are related. And baptism and the cross are related. And the cross and the Lord's Supper table are related. But they are not the same thing. It takes the cross so that we can have a table. It takes the cross so that He can prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemy. Satan, and death, and sin. So our Savior enters into the same suffering that you and I share and redeems it. John Mark Hicks is the one who has made the distinction about the altar and the table. I've mentioned his book before. It's called Come to the Table. I want to encourage you to read it. I think we really need to study it maybe in a future class. But his I'm going to give you just the briefest overview of this, and I want to tell you that in his book, if you find this interesting, seek this book out, and you will, you will be um, uh, encouraged by the, by the distinction that he makes. That when you go back to the Old Testament, and you look at the way the Old Testament uh, Israel celebrated their festivals and feasts, there was an altar of sacrifice, And then there was a table where the sacrifice was eaten and consumed. The altar was the place 
for the sacrifice. And it had a place in their ceremony, in their life, in their worship. But the altar was not the end. It was the means to the end. It was enabled to get you to the table. In the New Testament understanding, in the biblical understanding, the cross of Jesus Christ is the altar that gets us to the table. But once the sacrifice has been made at the altar, you leave the altar and you go to the table. Christ's sacrifice leads to fellowship with one another and fellowship with God. Because of the sacrifice that God Himself provides on the altar of the cross, we can be received into fellowship and communion with a holy God. When you go back and you read Leviticus, Leviticus, I have a new respect for Leviticus. I used to, I, oh, I used to get so cranky about Leviticus. I mean, I, I, that's the word for it, cranky. Because I, I would want to read my Bible in a year, and I get to Leviticus, and I'm like, oh, do we have to do Leviticus? Let's skip Leviticus. I love Leviticus now. Leviticus is a safety manual, okay? If you understand that, you'll understand Leviticus. Leviticus is a safety manual where God is saying, okay, look, I'm going to have to tell you how to gear up so that we can have some, some time together. Because if you come in here like you are right now, you're dying. And that's not going to be any fun for any of us. So God is telling them how to do this. And there's some sacrifices that take place. And those sacrifices atone for our sins so that we can enter into God's presence. Well, now, in the cross, God has taken care of that sacrifice Himself. In the person of Jesus, once and for all. So if you're concerned that every Sunday we have to somehow sacrifice all over again, we have to go to the cross and do this all over again, you've probably heard that like I have. And it's customary, it's customary for us to say, well, you know, um, we, we need to be mindful of our sins because our sins, you know, crucify Christ all over again. It's customary to think that. Problem is, it's not biblical. And I'm a little concerned when something's not biblical. Hebrews 10.12 tells us that our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down on the, in the place of honor at God's right hand. So how many times does Jesus need to be sacrificed? Once. And that's it. That doesn't mean we can't think about that. That doesn't mean that we don't remember that. But it doesn't happen all over again. Now I know somebody's going to say, yeah, but what about Hebrews 6? All right. Real quick. Hebrews 6 says, you know, that, that you're like those who sacrifice Christ all over again when you reject God and you, when you reject His Spirit and His forgiveness. He's not saying that that actually happens again. He's saying that we are just like the ones who rejected Christ and crucified Him when we ignore what we have as redeemed children of God. Still, still not convinced. I got a little extra for you, okay? If I'm taking up a little too much time here, well, this is important because I get asked more questions about Hebrews 6 than any other passage. Hebrews 6 says, 
It's impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing Him to the cross once again and holding Him up to public shame. Well, now, preacher, just said right there, that we're nailing Jesus to the cross all over again. Yeah, but then why does the same book later say He was a single sacrifice good for all time? Well, you keep reading. Verse 9, Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we really don't believe this applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for Him and how you have shown your love to Him by caring for other believers as you still do. This nailing Jesus up is an admonition not to be like those who rejected Christ and ignored the fact. You see, they did that because they could not imagine that God would enter into suffering. That to enter into suffering would be to somehow embrace sin. But this is where Christ, the Lamb that was slain, does His redeeming work. So that now that we have this sacrifice on the cross, there are options and opportunities that we never imagined before. Why would we want to ignore that or take that lightly? Or somehow be optional or glib about the whole thing and say, I appreciate what Christ did. I guess I'll give it a thought and we'll see what it works. We'll see how that works out in my life. Understanding what Christ did on the altar of the cross should cause us to come running to the table because we've now been given away to the table. Fellowship, koinonia, communion. The goal of the cross was to open the way, was to give us a seat at the table. The Lord's Supper is the table. And at that table, we celebrate a new covenant, a new relationship with God and one another. How did we get here? Because of the Lamb that was slain. He subjected Himself to the suffering. He's the one that endured the cross for the joy set before Him. In Hebrews 10, verse 18, we're reminded, just to underline all this, that when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. I know that you and I have sins that we need to be forgiven of daily. I get that. But I want you to understand that on the altar of the cross... Jesus Christ, the one obedient to His Father, the Lamb that was slain, He took care of that forgiveness for us once and for all time. What we have to do is accept that and trust in that. And if we will, we we can be cleansed and given a seat at this table. Before we even knew that we needed to ask for it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. 
at the altar of suffering, he prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. So as you come to this table today, and and maybe you're doubtful that you're worthy. Maybe you're doubtful that you should be here. Maybe you're wondering, what do I do? Am I here to crucify Christ all over again? You need to understand that the Lamb that was slain has carried out the will of God. And there's no longer any need for sacrifice. It's been dealt with. God has taken care of that. And if you are suffering today and you're hurting today, you're invited to this table. You're not turned away from it. I know it's customary for us to say, leave your cares and worries aside. It's customary to say that. It's not biblical. <laughs> it's not biblical. I'm, like I said, if it's not biblical, I got, I got some issues with that. In fact, we're called to bring our brokenness, our suffering, and our hurting to the table and watch our Father, our Hero, our Lamb that was slain, our Savior. Watch Him redeem that into something that brings Him glory. He took the Roman instrument of shame and punishment and transformed it into a symbol of forgiveness. He took the bread and the wine that celebrates God's grace and turned it into an enduring covenant meal for all ages. He brought people who would never have bothered to associate with one another together at His table. And whether you're suffering at the hands of another or by your own doing, or you're just suffering and you don't know why, You need to understand that because of that suffering, you're not excluded from this table. In fact, you're invited to come to this table and find healing. We need to know that as we come to this table that He shares in our suffering. Because He's the Lamb that was slain. Your suffering is not something that God despises or looks down on. Your suffering is not something that God pulls away from and withdraws. It's something that He understands. It's something that He enters into so that He can redeem that suffering and alleviate it with us. Suffering then gets overcome by hope and by joy. Because our Savior has wholly rescued us. It's not tentative. It's not what if. It's not maybe. The drama ended at the cross. Salvation is secured. All we're doing is celebrating a future meal that we're only getting a glimpse of now. So, whatever suffering we're going through, it's momentary. Whatever suffering in this world we're going through, it's momentary. Because there is a hope and a joy, not only in this world, but certainly in eternity, where we feast at that table and are fed by our Savior forever and ever. It's with that that I want us to stand right now. We're going to sing a song, and I want to say, Welcome to the table of the Lord.